Today, uh, I am preaching on the, uh, this is the third sermon in this six-part sermon series, and my focus today is on uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and a few weeks ago, Fred and I, we were talking on the phone, and basically, I pitched to Fred, like, hey, I'd be willing to preach on this sermon. Um, and I did not realize it at the time, like how daunting of a topic it is to talk about the kingdom of heaven. Um, and it's been, the past three weeks have been really, it just, it's, God has like blown wide open just a lot of things for me. And um, over the past like six months, I have been having some personal and like, uh, I've been wrestling with God a lot. I've been challenging God. I've been trying to figure out uh, why he says the things he says and how he says them in the Bible. Just wrestling with the word of God. Um, but <laughs> over the past few weeks, I have... I feel like God has really just put uh, a heavenly perspective uh, over me through scripture and the understanding of the kingdom of heaven. And um, a lot of those struggles and challenges that I've had as I've like, been wrestling with God, uh, those things have certainly not disappeared when it comes to um, my relationship with God. But certainly when you have the kingdom of heaven in front of you, uh, a lot of the challenges and struggles that I had seem to just it felt smaller. It never disappeared, but it just felt smaller. Um, and so that's really what I hope to aim, or I aim to do today, is um, I just want to put a heavenly perspective and try to encourage our church to look forward to the kingdom come, to the kingdom of heaven, uh, in, this, in the same way that Jesus does, in the same way that he prays for it. Uh, <clears throat> so I guess we can... Um, if you want to turn in your Bibles, it's only a 14-verse uh, passage really today. So it's uh, Matthew 6, verse 10. And uh, actually, before, before I even start preaching on that passage, uh, let me just pray really quick. Um, Father God, would you use me today and use me in the midst of my nervousness and, and my fear and my stumbling words to somehow get to the heart of your message. Um, God, would your Holy Spirit come and make something happen today and just reveal your kingdom to us? Amen. So uh, we're in the Lord's Prayer, and uh, I just want to paint some context really quick on the Lord's Prayer. Um, it's, it's really actually part of a larger sermon, right? So Fred was talking about this in the past couple sermons. Um, Jesus is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And that is actually, in, in the Gospel according to Matthew, that is Jesus' first sermon. And um, it says in Matthew 4 that at the onset of Jesus' ministry, that he's beginning his ministry. And um, Matthew describes this sermon uh, actually in one sentence. And he says that Jesus is going out town to town, and he's saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So I would say that's actually the real title of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and so it was kind of crazy as I was like diving into this idea of the kingdom of heaven within the Sermon on the Mount, because I started to realize that out of the, uh, the six sermons, that this is probably the most important one. <laughs> Kind of. I mean, not really. But 
I mean, I don't want to like put myself up too much, but this is like the Sermon on the Mount is like the, the whole focus, like all throughout the scripture, it's all about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus just repeats that phrase over and over again. And it's really cool because uh, if, you, if you geeked out a little bit with me and you zoomed out and looked at the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it can be broken down into three main sections. So there is an introduction, there's a body, and there's a conclusion. And in the middle of the body is the Lord's Prayer. And so some people, I guess some scholars would submit that Jesus purposefully structured his sermon that way, and that he put the Lord's Prayer at the center of the center of the Sermon on the Mount because it's the most important part. So if the Lord's Prayer really is the most important part of his sermon, then we have to look at what is in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, which a lot of people would argue is the kingdom of heaven. Believe it or not, the kingdom come is the most important part of the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer, it's, it's super cool because Fred mentioned last week, he was talking about how the Lord's Prayer is blowing up a lot of the Jews' preconceptions. Um, the Jews at the time did not feel comfortable calling God Father, and they did not view him as an intimate and relatable God. Um, <clears throat> But here, Jesus is inviting the Jews of his time to come forward and to call God Father or call God Dad. And so in the same way, uh, Jesus, when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, when he says, your kingdom come, he's actually making a pretty revolutionary statement here. And he is turning upside down this idea of what the kingdom actually looks like. So in... Uh, <clears throat> I guess let's, I want to, again, keep painting some more context um, because I think it's important to know what the Jews of Jesus' time believed. And actually, uh, the Jews of Jesus' time believed the same thing Jesus did in the sense that they had the same Bible, right? They had this thing called the Tanakh, and we call it the Old Testament, right? And I think it's, it's super important just to understand um, how Jesus and what Jesus is turning upside down on its head. Uh, I think the first thing I want to look at in the Old Testament is this really strange story. Uh, some of you guys might know about it. It's in Genesis 38, and it's the story of Tamar and Judah. Uh, to summarize it, just to brush your memory up, um, Judah's firstborn son, his name is Er, uh, E-R, and E-R, <laughs> Er, is married to Tamar. And uh, Er is viewed, wicked, viewed as wicked in the sight of God, and so God strikes him dead. So then Er's brother, his name is Onan, is then ordered by Judah to go and to sleep with Tamar and to conceive a child with her. It's, this is like super Game of Thronesy. It's just like very strange for us to hear this. Onan uh, does indeed uh, sleep with Tamar, but he spills his seed on the ground. And what happens next? It says God strikes Onan dead because he spilled his seed on the ground. And a lot of people will use that passage uh, for some other purposes, but I think it's important to just try to understand why exactly that act of spilling a seed on the ground was so treacherous and why it was worthy of death. But I'll keep going. I'll, I'll uh, come back to that a little bit later. So Onan is dead. Er is dead. Tamar doesn't have anyone to conceive with. So she goes and disguises herself as a prostitute and convinces Judah to sleep with her, thereby conceiving. And then in the last act of the story, Tamar reveals who she is 
to Judah. And Judah says, he doesn't freak out and go, like, this is disgusting, like, this is totally off. Instead, he says, Tamar is the righteous one here. And that's really strange for us to hear, but actually what's cool about Tamar and what she did is she's actually living out in faith by doing what she did, by deceiving Judah into sleeping with her. Because she's actually believing in a promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 17.7. God makes a covenant. He makes an everlasting promise to Abraham and all of Abraham's descendants. And he's saying, he says that God would create an earthly kingdom out of Abraham's offspring. So when Tamar goes and tricks Judah into sleeping with her and conceiving, what she is doing is doing her best effort to continue the offspring of Abraham, to continue the line that God had destined and purposed so that the kingdom would come through Abraham's uh, lineage. And so that's why the idea of Onan not, refusing to conceive with Tamar and instead spilling his seed, that's, uh, that's why he was struck dead. So the Jews of Jesus' day, they also believed in the promise that was made to Abraham. They believed that the kingdom of God would be through the descendants of Abraham. In other words, they believed that the kingdom would be established by blood, by literal physical blood. They believed that their great commission was actually to produce progeny and fill the earth and multiply. Um, Exodus 19.6 says that God's kingdom will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the Jews of Jesus' time are waiting for kingdom come in the sense that they are waiting for this ethnic and physical kingdom. They are waiting for a king who's going to establish that throne and that king was supposed to come from the line of Abraham through the line of David. So knowing what the Jews of Jesus' time believed about what the kingdom would look like, uh, let's, let's kind of zoom out again and look at the Sermon on the Mount. So I mentioned before that Jesus repeatedly uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, right? And uh, certain phrases, and we, we'll ha- probably have it up back here, it's... Uh, Phrases like, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Or the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount is he's, he's basically describing what it takes to enter the kingdom of heaven. And really, anyone that's listening to Jesus in this sermon is kind of asking themselves, this bar doesn't make any sense. Because what Jesus is saying is no one is able to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus would actually probably agree with that. He would say that no one is worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven, save perhaps for the king himself. And so in in some ways, Jesus is presenting a sword and a stone. He's presenting this, this test and this gauntlet in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying that a perfect life is worthy to enter the kingdom. And at the conclusion of his sermon, uh, it says that the crowds were astonished at his authority. Because much of the Sermon on the Mount is spent uh, adding or augmenting to the words of Moses. Jesus is, in some ways, he's kind of blowing up the scriptures that they all knew. And for them, a lot of that felt like blasphemy. 
So it feels like Jesus is kind of gatekeeping the kingdom of heaven, right? He's saying, like, these are all the things you need to do. These are all the Mosaic law and prophets and the heart of those things, and no one can satisfy that. In some ways, the reason that they're astonished at his authority is because the only person who can change or add or augment the word of God is God himself. So in Mark chapter 2, Jesus, he is uh, finishing his first ministry tour, and uh, he, he went around to the towns, and he was preaching. And the crowds are following him. And he, he, it says he gets home to Capernaum. And he, I presume he was he's probably trying to get some rest, but the, it looks like the crowds don't have any, any idea of what personal space looks like because they cram into his house. It says literally like shoulder to shoulder up until the door. They're like overflowing out. And... It says that as he, he actually has compassion on the crowd and he's, he's preaching and teaching from the word. And four guys, four buddies, decide to bring their paralytic friend to Jesus' doorstep. Of course, they can't get inside, so they decide to climb up onto Jesus' roof. And if we're to understand what houses back then look like, they are literally digging their way through the roof, through clay, through wood and straw to get to Jesus. And I imagine it was probably a somewhat slow process. So, like, perhaps Jesus is preaching, and there's just, like, dust that, like, slowly starts to fall. And then suddenly you start to see, like, a shovel or a spade poke through. But at some point, right, these guys get to Jesus. And and what is the first thing that he says? He sees the paralytic, and he says, your sins are forgiven. He is so moved by their faith, and the first thing he focuses on are, your son, your sins are forgiven. And there's religious scribes in the crowd, and they're watching, and they're disgusted. Because Jesus right there is making a claim to divinity when he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus, reading their minds, he then says to them, this is Mark chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So why am I bringing this miracle up in particular? I think it's super cool and fortuitous that the Sunday, the miners are also talking about miracles and Jesus' authority. Um, And I hope that they're going to say the same things, but... This miracle is one of many that proves Jesus' messianic authority. And it's a story about him backing up his claim to the throne, right? I mentioned that Jesus, with his Sermon on the Mount, he is laying down the sword and the stone. He's presenting to the people, this is what it's going to take for someone to claim the throne. And then he backs up what he says by performing miracles and showing that he is the king that they were looking for because of his authority over spiritual and physical things. And he spends three years doing this, going from town to town, showing his authority over everything and everyone. And then finally, he grasps the final sword in the stone when he walks to his death, and he's executed at the hands of Roman and Jewish authorities. That final sword in the stone, when he conquers death, was the final proof that he was worthy to sit on the throne of the kingdom of heaven forever. 
Second point about talking about this miracle. Jesus, by healing the physical and the spiritual, is showing a foretaste of what the kingdom come will look like. By showing that he is capable of restoring all things, he is telling us that when he comes back, that is exactly what he's going to do in full and in absolute completion. He's saying that where he is, there will absolutely be restoration and perfection. And so when we pray, and it's really tough for us sometimes to pray for kingdom come. That's a very strange phrase for us. It has a lot of baggage sometimes. But when we pray for kingdom come, we are actually praying not because of what the kingdom is, but because of who the kingdom is. We're praying for Jesus to return so that he can be the king that we worship forever. So the Israelites at the end of the Old Testament were left wondering, right, who would the king be? We stand in a side of history where we know who the king is, and he has proven himself worthy, and we stand at a point in history where we're waiting for Jesus to come back. So the Israelites have these descriptions of the Messiah. They have this idea of what he'll look like. Jesus actually says himself that he will come back. He says that in John 14, 3, and it's riddled all throughout the New Testament. References from his disciples, from writers, apostles, saying that Jesus would, would come back, that he's going to descend from heaven a second time. And so we're looking forward, not really sure what exactly things will look like, but Jesus does give us some semblance, right? And so what I want to do is I want to read Revelation 21, 1 through 4. And because I just, there's, there's no real way for me to summarize this because I think this is like such an intense and powerful image. So let me just read this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Former things have passed away. I think each and every one of us is carrying weight today. Wherever you go, uh, there's always just something hurting. There's chronic pain, marital issues, trauma, addiction, guilt. But Jesus tells us in Revelation 21 that he will make all things new and he will take those things away from you. He promises that. And so one of the sharing, the sharing prompt for today is uh, once the sermon's over, we'll get together in groups of three to four and we will share prayer requests, particularly about healing. And so we'll do one sentence prayer formats, but um, I think miracles can definitely happen. But even in the midst of your prayers today, even if the healing doesn't happen, even if there isn't a miracle, I think my main hope 
is just simply that you would believe the promise that you could look upwards and believe in a future glory where everything is perfect and everything is made right. That you would lift your eyes and see eternity stretched out before you. And then you'll end each prayer with the phrase Maranatha, which is, we're substituting amen with that, because Maranatha, it's Aramaic, and it means Lord come. I think it's a good exercise to try to start saying, Lord, would you actually come? Lord, we are seeking and waiting for you to come. In the kingdom of heaven, uh, we do look forward to everything being made perfect. And it describes the streets and cities being made of gold in the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and the new earth. But those are all periphery symptoms, actually. The kingdom is beautiful, but it's beautiful because the king is beautiful. The perfection is a result of the perfecter. So if we're to believe that the presence of Jesus is the source of the perfection, like I said, when we pray for kingdom come, we're actually praying for the king to take his throne. And what does it look like for Jesus to be on the throne? I'll read Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16 now. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you believe in Jesus and you believe that he actually is true to his word, then you have to believe that this will be our future someday, that we get to worship this king who's coming on a white horse, who is called faithful and true. And we get to worship him forever and call him king of kings and lord of lords. So I, I want to end with a few applications. Um, so Joss and I, we got to see Taylor Swift in the Eras tour, in the, uh, in the movie theater. But um, <laughs> it's all the same. But <laughs> So some of you know, 2023 was her year. Um, she officially became a billionaire last year. Uh, she became Times Person of the Year, and Forbes declared her the most influential entertainment person in the world. So I did some research, maybe because I was thinking about buying tickets to the tour, and uh, it was quickly that idea was crushed in my head because uh, I went on StubHub, and people are paying $2,200 to sit in the stadium in the nosebleeds of the nosebleeds. And so when I say that, I mean like you literally are so far off to the side and to like the back of the stage that you can't even see Taylor Swift. Like you're, the whole time you're just watching her on a screen. So you might as well just like buy the movie tickets. But it just like blew my mind that people were paying over $2,000 
just to sit within 500 yards of Taylor Swift and not even see her. And so my point here is, like, what if we had that kind of zeal when it came to looking forward to God dwelling with us? Just the idea that God will be in our physical presence someday with the new heavens and the new earth, that someday we get to look forward to actually seeing him in all his glorious light on the throne, his robes filling the earth. So I reached out to uh, Taylor Swift's PR team. I shot him an email and because uh, I was trying to see if I could get tickets on discount. And uh, believe it or not, she actually, uh, not her, but her PR team reached out to me and they said uh, they welcomed me to come to one of the shows in Miami and go backstage to meet Taylor Swift. No, that did not happen. You, some of you guys are like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. But like, just imagine, like, that's the crazy thing about God coming. He's, he's inviting us. He like, he actually wants to dwell with us. Like, just the feeling you got, we're like, what? Like, that is what we are waiting for. That is what is going to happen when God comes and dwells with us. And so that's my first application here, is just get excited. Just like, get really pumped. It says that in Revelation 19.7 that we should compare God coming back like a marriage, like a wedding day. So if we actually live that out, let me read this to you. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And this is so important here. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. I don't know if you guys have been married, uh, or I'm sure some, a lot of us, all of us have probably been to a wedding. Um, when, when Jocelyn got married, when my wife and I got married, <laughs> uh, it's, it's pretty obvious, it's very stark, like how much preparation goes into the bride's like, appearance versus the, the groom, right? Like literally we got up at like 10 a.m., like had McDonald's, I think we just like literally lounged about. It was like, it was so casual for the guys, but the girls are up at like 7 a.m., like getting their makeup done, getting photos done. Um, like every little minutia is just like, it explodes. Like it's, the day is so stressful. But Jesus is explaining to us here in Revelation that we should be looking forward to the coming of Christ in the same way that we should be extremely, extremely nervous and excited in such a way that we cannot live in the same way that we used to, right? We cannot be the same person if we accept Christ and believe that he is actually coming. So that's my second application, is that our lives should look completely different. That our love for the kingdom as it's coming is going to be far greater than our love for the world. And so that makes us look radically different to everyone by the ways that we love and the ways we serve and the ways that we give our time. And we stay confident that we will be perfected and that he will complete the good work that he began in us. In other words, I'm making the case for sanctification here. 
I'm saying that the Holy Spirit, believe it or not, is transforming you, even if you don't really see it. I would just encourage you, as you pray for kingdom come, ask for the Holy Spirit to transform you and your desires and to make your desires into Christ's desires. And while it may be slow going at times, trust that God is perfecting you. My third application, I mentioned earlier in the sermon that the Israelites believed that their commission was to multiply and fill the earth with progeny and with descendants of Abraham. When Jesus came, he flipped that commission on its head, and we know it today as the Great Commission now. Because we are no longer making children through the bloodline of Abraham. We're making children through the bloodline of Christ. And we do that by sharing the gospel with non-believers and going out and living out the Great Commission, baptizing with water and the Holy Spirit. So if you actually believe that the kingdom is going to come, then you better tell everyone you know, because there will come a day when we will be able to enter the kingdom of heaven and be able to look to our left and our right, and we will see each other. And hopefully we will be seeing other people that we invited also to the wedding feast. The Christian walk is only half complete when you remember what Christ did for you. I think the Christian walk is the most complete when you also look forward to the coming of Christ. When you're excited and your joy can't be taken from you at the thought of being with Christ forever. Let me pray. God, you are majestic and powerful and triumphant. God, you are the lion and you are also the lamb. God, tender loving and humble. God, we cannot wait for the day when we get to see you as the king and the groom. We love you, Lord. Amen.